0: I guess. I appreciate that opportunity to be introduced like that. Half of that stuff I'd never heard before, so that's kind of exciting, <laughs> especially the part about the church in Florida having a basement. That's not possible, but otherwise, uh, besides the fact we're meeting in the fellowship hall, fellowship hall, there we go, everything else was true. God did, he's, uh, it's been amazing to see God do a work uh, like he has in our lives, and I can't wait to share with you a little bit more about that, but as you have already seen I'm going to talk to you today about the discipline of the Lord. Now, most people say, hey, we got a guest preacher. We're going to get his sugar stick message. We're going to get his favorite one, his fun one. And most of you are going to say, wait a minute, that doesn't sound like fun. The discipline of the Lord, we didn't sign up for a fun message like that. Actually, I hope by the end of the message you realize how exciting God's discipline is. Also, I want to take a quick second to say thank you for those of you that have known and have been praying for me. Uh, I just went through a whole bout of uh, non-Hodgkin's lymphoma last year. spent most of last year with chemotherapy and radiation and bald, and uh, God has healed me. I am completely healed of the cancer, and my cancer doctor says don't come see me again for six months. So praise the Lord. I'm grateful to be back on the road. He uh, took me through a journey we're going to talk a little bit about today as well, that it, like he does with all of us, to discipline us. So would you open your Bibles to Deuteronomy chapter 8. Deuteronomy chapter 8, we're going to look at verses 1 through 5 as our passage we're going to break down today. There's going to be a bunch of other scriptures we're going to look at as well, but this is the passage that we're going to get God's message from today, and everything he wants us to see is going to be rooted right here in this section. Deuteronomy chapter 8, the nation of Israel is about to go into the promised land, they've had their opportunity, they blew it, they've been wandering now for 40 years, and God through Moses is about to give the final instructions right before they go into the promised land. And of course, Moses doesn't lead them in, but Joshua does. But God through Moses says in Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 1, the whole commandment that I command you today, you shall be careful to do that you may live and multiply and go in and possess the land that the Lord swore to give your fathers. And you shall remember the whole way that the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness, that he might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart, Whether you would keep his commandments or not and he humbled you and he let you hunger and he fed you with manna Which you did not know nor did your fathers know that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone But man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord Your clothing did not wear out on you and your foot did not swell these 40 years Know then in your heart that as a man disciplines his son the Lord your God disciplines you you that's where we're going to go today verse 5 is the key of what we're hoping to end up with at the end of this message that you would know in your heart that as a father an earthly father disciplines their children your heavenly father disciplines you now before we get into this passage i need you to go with me to to hebrews chapter 12 go to hebrews chapter 12 put a bookmark here in deuteronomy 8 and go with me to hebrews chapter 12 and we'll look at verses 5 and following it's a very familiar passage whenever you've heard a preacher preach on God's discipline. I want to lay a few things out from that that will help us as we get into our other passages In Hebrews chapter 12, look at verse 5. The Hebrew writer says, and you have forgotten the exhortation. That's an interesting word. Some of your translations say encouragement. You've forgotten the encouragement that addresses you as sons. And then he quotes from Proverbs chapter 3, verses 10 and 11. He says, My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by Him. For the Lord disciplines the one He loves, and He chastises every son whom He receives. Now it's for discipline that you have to endure. For God is treating you as sons, For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? And if you're left without discipline in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the father of spirits and live? For they, the earthly fathers, disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them. But he, God, disciplines us for our good, that we may share his holiness." For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. That's why we're not excited about a message on discipline. But later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Now, this is a very familiar section of Scripture, probably to most of you. And whenever you've heard a preacher preach on God's discipline you've heard him say these things if you're being disciplined it's because you're God's child He doesn't discipline those who aren't his children He teaches his children and at the same time He does it because he loves us and he does it because it's for our good and it's going to produce righteousness in the end But here's what I want to deal with this morning And here's where I want to go for most of us who have heard preaching on God's discipline for years We've heard all that that God disciplines you because he loves you. He's disciplined you because you're his child But how many of us have ever heard a preacher tell us what the discipline is? We've been told that God disciplines us and we should be expecting God's discipline, but no one's ever told us what the discipline looks like. So how do we recognize it? Well, that's where we're going to go today. Go back to Hebrews chapter 8, sorry, not Hebrews, Deuteronomy chapter 8, and you will see that in this passage, God actually tells us what his discipline is, and I can't wait to show it to you. Now, I'm going to pull out from this passage this morning three things that God says that show us what our, what his discipline is. But before I do that, there's a word I want you to see in verse two. It says, you shall remember the whole way that the Lord your God has, what's that next word? Led you these 40 years in the wilderness. Before we get into what his discipline looks like and what it is, I want you to grasp that word led. You see, we hear the word discipline and we hear the word punishment, Correct? When we hear discipline, we hear punishment. We also hear the word discipline and we hear reaction. We do something and God reacts. We do something wrong and he might slap our hand or we do something good and he gives us a cookie. We've always seen the discipline of God as reactionary to what we've done in the first place. Don't miss this. God's discipline is actually ahead of you. God's discipline is a training and a shaping. The word discipline, the root word is disciple. A disciple is a learner. A disciple is being taught. The word discipline does not mean punish, and I'll show you why in just a second. The word discipline does not mean punish. The word discipline means he wants to teach you. So when you hear the word discipline, keep in mind, God wants to teach you, to train you, to mold you, to shape you. Doesn't uh, Romans chapter 8 verse 29 say that he's predestined to conform us into the image of Jesus Christ? God's discipline is ahead of us. You as earthly parents have a responsibility of training your children and getting them ready for adulthood. When our kids were little and we'd eat at a restaurant, there would be the silverware all wrapped up already together, but in there would be that sharp steak knife. And when they were little, we would open it and take the steak knife out and say, you're not ready to handle the sharp knife yet. But in time, when they were ready and we had trained them, we would then let them keep the steak knife. And then you, you knew what was coming up and you had to get them ready for the next grades of school or whether or not they had to learn how to tie their shoes or how to drive a car. And you were already thinking about what was next, correct? And preparing them, training them to get ready for college, to get ready for marriage. Your purpose as a parent was to discipline and train and teach your child to get ready for what is to come. Remember all these years how the Lord your God led you. He was ahead of them. His discipline is a training and a teaching for what is to come. Now, again, we still have trouble with that sense of the punishment. Well, let me put it to you in a different way that will help you. By the way, in the old NIV translation, In Hebrews twelve, it says he punishes everyone he accepts as a son. I I don't like that. I wish they hadn't used that word because he's quoting from Proverbs chapter three verses ten and eleven, and that word's not there. The word "punish" doesn't work. Here's why: God has already fully punished Jesus for all of your sins, has He not? When Jesus was on the cross, He cried out to Telestai, "Paid in full." God already punished Jesus for all of your sins. And if you are in Christ, God will never, ever punish you. How many people, though, over the years, when something happens that they don't like and it's painful, as all discipline is painful, their first thought is, God's mad. God's punishing me. God's making me pay for what I've done or not done. Folks, let me say something to you this morning. If you are here and you feel like God's punishing you when He's disciplining you, if you believe God is punishing you for something you've done or not done after you've been saved, you don't believe Jesus fully paid the price for your sins. You feel like He paid some and you still got to pay some. He paid it all. And everything that comes to us from the hand of the Father now is from his hand of love. Even though it may not be pleasant, it cannot be punishment, or Jesus didn't pay the full price. You with me so far? All right, so let's take a look at what he uh, keeps trying to say Hebrews. Deuteronomy 8 says the discipline looks like. The first thing you see right there also in verse 2, he says, remember... The whole way that the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness that he might what? Humble you. Now some of you say, wait a minute, Jim. I thought you said we were going to get excited about the discipline of God. Now you're going to tell me that what this discipline is is that he's going to humble me? Yes. But let me help you with this. We're not going to have you turn there. Many of you can quote this with me. In Matthew chapter 23, verse 12, doesn't the scripture say, whoever humbles himself will be exalted. Whoever exalts himself will be what? All right, let's, let's say it again together here so this sinks in. Whoever humbles himself will be exalted. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled. All right, have you caught it yet? You're going to be humbled either way. You, being humbled is in your future. You either humble yourself and you'll be humbled or you'll be humbled by God. You're going to be humbled. Actually, what hum, being humbled is, is simply this. It's being reminded of our dependence on God. Doesn't the Bible say in Him we live and move and have our being? Doesn't the Bible say that apart from Him, John 15 verse 5, that apart from Him we can do nothing? Doesn't the Bible say that He controls whether or not we have life or breath or the next day? We don't have control over any of that stuff. Doesn't the Bible say that we are totally dependent on God? But Do we live that way? No, we don't. I just had the privilege of preaching for a week up in New Hampshire. And we looked at the fact that in Proverbs chapter 3, verses 5 and 6, it says, trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him and He will direct your paths. And most of us could quote that, but how many of us live it? How many of us acknowledge our trust in Him all the time? Check with Him in everything. We, we tend to not do that, don't we? And what God did was, he said, listen closely. Remember how your Lord, your God led you in the wilderness. Think about this. God took a nation of people who were slaves in Egypt. And by the way, historians and Bible scholars believe there are probably about a million Jews at that time that came out of Egypt. And God took them straight into the wilderness, the desert, where there was no food and no water. God's first thing he does after rescuing them from Egypt, pranging them through the Red Sea and doing that big miracle, he takes them straight into a place where there's no food and no water. And he's got a million people. Was his GPS broke? Was, was the GPS saying recomputing? Or was God intentionally doing something? He was intentionally orchestrating their life to humble them. To remind them of their dependence on him. By the way, does anybody remember what had just happened right before the, uh, the Jews came out of Egypt, right before the Red Sea? The last thing that they did to the Egyptians right before they left? Yes. What, what, what did they do? They plundered them, didn't they? God says, I'm going to make them dis- disposed to good toward you. You just ask them for their gold and their silver and their precious cloth. These Jews, who had been slaves for 400 years, all of a sudden had hit the lottery and they had gotten just all this gold and silver. And, buddy, they're feeling pretty good. We got money in the bank. And God takes them to a place where it won't do them any good. He's reminding them of their dependence on him. Folks, some of you are going through something right now. I can promise you what God's doing is he's reminding you of your dependence on him. It's always been that way. We sometimes forget my wife and I, she's with me now. I've been here a couple of times it's my first time I get to bring my wife because I want everybody to know I really do have a beautiful wife. Like I've been telling everybody, I've been traveling this country for a while all by myself because she's been taking care of the kids at home, but now they're 24, 22, and 19, and we don't care about them anymore, and they can, and they can do whatever they want. So she's traveling with me, and, and, and my wife will tell you when we first got married, Our combined income, our first year of marriage, was $5,558. We still have the tax paperwork to prove it. Our first year of marriage, we got married in 1990, coming up on 28 years this July 20th. We only took in less than $6,000 in our whole first year of marriage as income. But you know, God took care of us, and within a couple of years, we actually had saved up three thousand dollars in our savings account i mean that's a half a year's salary i mean that's that's a lot of money it was christmas time of 1993 and i'm associate pastor of a church in new orleans and all of a sudden i couldn't sing the high notes and i love to sing it's christmas time and i love to sing the christmas songs and I couldn't couldn't hit the high notes, but I figured you know there's something wrong in my throat But it's no big deal. It'll be better next week and next week I I couldn't hit the medium notes and by the third week I couldn't even hit the low notes and there came a point where I actually couldn't even make a sound Something had happened to my voice that was serious and they rushed me to the ear nose and throat doctor If any of you've ever been you know how he takes that little camera and covers it with the jelly and puts it in your nose and down I can still taste it And he goes whoa You've got a growth on your vocal cords that's not allowing them to touch. That's why you're not able to speak. And we think it's cancer. My wife had to speak. Of course, I can't make a sound. She goes, we've got a problem. He goes, what's that? He goes, she goes, we don't have any health insurance. They said, well, we can't do anything. She goes, you just told me my husband... Possibly has cancer on his throat and you're not going to do anything He goes you're gonna to have to go talk to the business office at the hospital to see what they'll do So we go to the business office. We sit down in the business office. She explains that is what the ear nose and throat doctor says uh, It looks like we has cancer and we don't have any insurance. What can we do? The man literally folded his arms. He leaned back in his chair. He stared at us for a little bit and he said I'll make you a deal He said uh, if you'll give us $3,000 cash up front, we'll do the rest for free. But you got to give us $3,000 or we won't do it. You know what God did? He humbled us. We had always been dependent on Him, but once we got $3,000 in our savings, we forgot. I mean, we thought we were living pretty high in the hog and He took it all in one fell swoop. He reminded us of our dependence on Him. By the way, there's something about being humbled that God has taught me over the years, which is really cool. If I am totally dependent on God, listen closely, I'm no longer responsible for the results. Doesn't that feel good? If you are totally dependent on God and you trust in the Lord with all your heart, and you don't lean on your own understanding, and you, in all your ways, acknowledge Him, and He will direct your paths, the results are no longer your responsibility, they're God's. Oh, by the way, and I found over the years, He loves to show off. I, as a preacher, used to, years ago, worry about how good I did. I would preach and then examine how well I did by how many people came forward at the end or how many people said good job. My wife will tell you, I wore her out every Sunday. How did I do? Till finally one day, it hit me. If I just go into the pulpit believing that God's going to do what He said He would do and trust Him, I'm no longer responsible for the results. I just let Him do what He's going to do and I leave it to Him. Oh, by the way, if people do respond, He gets the glory, not me. And if they don't, not my job that's his work and it's freed me up as a preacher I don't go home afterwards now and think well maybe I shouldn't have said that or maybe I should have said that I don't examine myself anymore Paul even said that in 1 Corinthians 4 didn't he? He said I don't even examine myself I leave that to the Lord doesn't David say in, in uh, Psalm 139 verses 23 and 4 God you examine me and show me my heart you search me We spend too much time examining ourselves, how we're doing, beating ourselves up. By the way, that leads into the second thing in your passage that God does. His discipline is one, He's going to put you in situations that are beyond your control to humble you. To remind you of your dependence. The second thing you see in there, do you see it? Does anybody see what the second thing is? He humbled you and what? I heard it a little louder. I don't know if Sean lets you talk, but I do. What? What? they're mute (laughs) he tests us Do you see it he tested you to see what was in your heart whether or not you'd keep his commandments now that reads like God's test was because he didn't know whether or not we'd keep his commandments hopefully you know fully that's not the case the test was not for God to find out whether or not they would keep his commandments the test was for who for them and for us So not only is God putting you in a situation to remind you of the fact that you can't fix it. He's also at the same time using that situation that he's putting you through over and over and over, by the way, all throughout our lives. It's going to keep happening because he's disciplining us all the time. He's using it to show us what's in our hearts. You see... If I need to move you from here to there, right? If I need to move you from here to there, I can't move you from here to there if you think you're already here, right? If you think you're here, but I know you're there, what have I got to do? I've got to show you where you really are. If I were to ask you, do you trust God? Yes, I do. Praise God. Well, he'll show you whether you really do or not. I know over the years I've trusted God, but then the next thing comes and I'm just like the disciples. Have you ever noticed how God kept putting his disciples through discipline? When he sent them out two by two, he said, oh, by the way, you can't bring any food, you can't bring any money, you can't bring any change of clothes. What was he doing? Putting them in a situation where they had no ability to take care of themselves. But it was humbling them, testing them, and teaching them. Of course, they didn't learn. They came back. We're going to get to the teaching in a second. They come back and report to Jesus all that they had done. And what does he say? Come away with me by yourselves to a desolate place. And he retaught the lesson. Oh, in the feeding of the 5,000... They didn't learn the lesson. And then he puts them in a boat. Where they can't even get across the lake by themselves and he walks on the water to demonstrate his power and then the bible says when they jesus got in the boat with them they then went to the shore and all these people showed up and then there was another situation in mark chapter 8 where is the feeding of the four thousand, and the same disciples who had picked up 12 basketfuls after watching god do the miracle there as he retaught the lesson of their dependence on him and his provision and his power the same disciples that had picked up 12 basketfuls when jesus says in mark chapter 8 hey let's feed these people before they go they did what they said we can't do that how I don't know about you but that that sure sounds like Jim Johnson you remember how I told you when Becky and I were first married we only had less than six thousand dollars for the whole year we were newlyweds paying bills for the first time I remember we moved into our trailer on the seminary campus and it was, it was 12 feet wide, 62 feet long, and it was our first place we'd ever had. Her parents actually had to buy it for us because we didn't have the money to buy it. And, but I remember thinking, my dad always said, turn that air conditioner down. I remember thinking to myself, buddy, when I get my own house, I'm going to have it cold. We got into that trailer in New Orleans in August, and I cranked the A.C. And our first electric bill was 450 $450. There's no insulation in a trailer that's that old. The walls are about that thick. And we quickly sat down and we looked at our bills and we added them all up. We sat at this little kitchen table in our trailer and we put all our bills on the table and we brought our checkbook out and we looked and what we had in the checkbook was not enough to cover all our bills for the month. And we said, oh God, how are we going to pay our bills? Help! We're in a situation where we can't fix it. And he said, okay, here's what I want you to do. I want you to write a check to me first. I want you to take 10% of whatever you have that's just come in and give it to me. Huh? Trust me, watch what I do. And we did, we tithed to the church. And at the end of the month, folks, I cannot tell you how, but all those bills have been paid and we had money left in the checking account. You know what happened the next month? After watching God do that miracle, When the next bills came, we laid them all on the kitchen table, and they were more than we had in the checking account, and instead of saying, oh man, God's going to do it again, just like the disciples, we panicked. He was showing us what was in our heart. By the way, when God puts you through a test, and you fail the test, He's not mad. Listen closely. You see, the purpose of the test is to show you what God already knows, right? And if God's purpose is to show you what He already knows, and you now realize, I thought I was there, but I'm actually here, then His purpose of the test has been accomplished, and He's happy. See, years ago when we left Chicago to go to that church in Florida, the Lord blessed us with a house there in Florida, and and it has a swimming pool, we're still there has a big pool in the backyard, and there were five exits, four or five, I lost track, four exits off the back of the house to the pool. And at that time, our kids that are 24, 22, and 19 were six, four, and one. And the one-year-old, A.J., was not afraid of the water, and he thought he could swim. And I would say, A.J., you don't know how to swim. Let daddy teach you. He'd say, No. You don't need me to teach you? No. You can swim? Yes. I said, okay. I'm going to give you a swimming test. I then told Becky, go where you can't hear or see what's about to happen <laughs> because you, I don't want you anywhere near what I'm about to do. So she went and hid and plugged her ears, and I took my son, who thought he could swim, And I gave him a swimming test. Here was the swimming test. I picked him up fully clothed and I threw him in the deep end of the pool. By the way, did he pass the test or did he fail it? Failed it wonderfully, just marvelously he failed it. I let him get so good and scared that he realized he was going to die. His eyes got big, he drank half the pool and that's when I jumped in and pulled him out. And guess what? A.J. was now teachable because A.J. thought he was there, but I had to show him that he was still here. Do You understand? Was I mad that he failed the test? No, I was glad, because the test accomplished its purpose. It was to show him what I already knew. By the way, we didn't even have to lock the doors anymore. He wasn't going anywhere near that water. (laughs) You ready for something cool? That one-year-old boy is now 19. And he's a lifeguard at Walt Disney World. (laughs) And he's been trained for deep water rescues. But he became teachable. Did I throw him in the pool because I was mad at him? No. I was humbling him. Testing him. By the way, the test was for him. And then there's a third part. You see in this passage, it's not quite as clear as the humbling, the testing, but it's still there. Again, go back to verse 2. And you shall remember the whole way that the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness, that He might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart whether you would keep his commandments or not, and he humbled you, and he let you hunger, and he fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Don't miss this. The third thing in this passage, that the Bible shows us what his discipline is. He's humbling us, He's putting us in situations over and over. over. Have you ever noticed right about the time you finally get new tires on the car, the washing machine breaks? He continually puts us in situations over and over and over to remind us of our dependence on Him, to humble us, to show us where we really are faith-wise and whether or not we're going to obey His commandments, whether or not we're going to follow Him. But once we realize where we are and humble ourselves and say, okay, Lord, help. Doesn't Proverbs 3, 5 and 6 say, then He will direct your paths? He then will teach us how to listen to him now and follow him in faith. He puts you in a situation that you can't fix. He's doing it to remind you of your dependence. He's doing it to show you what's in your heart. But once those two purposes have been accomplished and you realize, I can't do this, now I know where I really am faith-wise. God, what would you have me do? You're now teachable, and he wants to teach you how to listen to him. Don't miss that. God said through Moses, I put you in the wilderness where there was no food and no water. I did it to remind you of your dependence on me. I did it to show you where your hearts really were. And by the way, what did they say? God hates us. Let's go back to Egypt. And my solution to your problem was something you had never seen before nor had your fathers ever seen it before. I did this so that you would seek me. See, here's one of the problems with the Christian church today. We've been at it long enough that we think we got God figured out. I've been a pastor now. I've been been preaching since I was 19. I've been working, serving God full-time and preaching since I was 19 years old, and I'm 53 now. And as I have the privilege of preaching all over the country and parts of the chunk of the world as well, and I've seen God at work, and I've seen the church, you know what I've noticed? As we get older, we get to a point where we stop following God. Men and women, true Christians who, when they were younger, depended on God and followed Him by faith. As we get older, and our bank accounts get a little bit fuller, and when things get a little bit more comfortable, We get our theology set, and we think we got God figured out. And most of the time, when the next situation arises, we just look to how we've handled it in the past. I don't know if you've ever noticed this or not, but if you go and you can double-check me, whenever God did something in the Bible, He never duplicated a method. Please hear me. God does not change. His word does not change. His truth will never change. His principles will never change. But the method in which he solved their situation every single time was different. When they crossed across the Red Sea, God's instructions were, Moses, hold your rod over the water, and it parted like that. What was the next body of water they came to? You just sung about it today. The Jordan. What were the instructions then? That Joshua was to hold Moses' rod over the water? No, the priests were to carry the ark and they were to step into the water and it stopped flowing in a town called Adam. Similar situation, but his solution was something they'd never seen before nor had their fathers ever seen before. The first city they come to is Jericho, isn't it? God's instructions this time, walk around the wall. By the way, he put them in a situation where they're totally helpless. Those walls were so thick, there was no way they were going to defeat this city. And he showed them what was in their heart. And then he said, here are my instructions. I want you to walk around the city six days on the seventh day, seven times. By the way, um, successful military campaign? (laughs) Name another city God ever had them walk around. Never did it again. How many times have we seen churches, we're going to walk around this building, you know, because we figured it worked one time. Oh, by the way, when they were in the wilderness and they were thirsty, God tells Moses, strike the rock then later on they're in a similar situation and they're thirsty again what were god's instructions this time speak to the rock moses though duplicates the previous previous method and god in his mercy provides water but because he stole god's glory and said are we gonna have to provide water for you he missed out on the promised land didn't he by the way you see this principle carry over to the new testament We see in the New Testament that Jesus heals people of blindness, but he never heals a person of blindness the same way, ever. In one instance, he touches a person, another person, the Bible says he touches someone twice. He he spits on the man's eyes and the guy says, I see people like trees walking around. The Bible says he touched him a second time and he could see. In another instance, in John 9, he spits in the ground and he makes mud, puts the mud on his eyes, tells him to go wash in the pool of Siloam. Think about this for a second, folks. Jesus is God. He can just say the word and they're healed. But the method that he chose to solve the problem that he had put them into was different every single time. Why? So they would check with him. By the way, Vance Havner, a wonderful old preacher, said if those three guys were alive today that had been healed of blindness, this is what the conversation would sound like. The first guy would walk up and say, I've been healed by the Lord. second one said, hang on for a second. He only touched you once. He touched me twice. If you haven't been touched twice, you haven't received a full healing. Third guy says, whoa, whoa, hang on a second. Did he make mud? Because if you didn't get mud, you didn't get the real healing. He said if those three guys were alive today, they would have started three different churches. Church of the One Touch, Church of the Two Touch, and the Mudites. Because how God does it for me is how he's supposed to do it for you. Isn't that what we have a tendency to do sometimes? Sometimes. Don't, oh by the way, aren't we in the church today fighting with each other over methods? We're fighting over worship methods, we're fighting over evangelism methods, we're fighting over, I could just go on, we're fighting over methods, but the Bible shows us that God's methods keep changing so that we would say, in this situation, Lord, what would you have us do? One of the saddest things in our churches is... We have written our Constitution and bylaws and our church manuals in such a way that we don't even have to check with God anymore. Need a new pastor? Page 7 tells us what we're to do. We have to go through these steps that have already been ordained. Don't get me started. Most of our churches think they're walking with God and we're not. We're doing it the way we've always done it and we think we're following God. But God said, I'm forever putting you in situations to remind you of your dependence on me. To show you where you are. The test is not because I'm mad at you. It's because I want you to see where I already see. And once you see what I see, now I can teach you. And oh, by the way, chances are real good that my solution to your situation won't be exactly how it was for Joe. Because I'm doing something in your life. Those of you that have more than one kid, haven't you come to realize that the discipline that worked with one child doesn't work with another child? You ever notice that? Same thing with God's children. I got some good news for you, though. Look at verse 4. Look at verse 4. In my Bible, I almost wanted to write, oh, by the way. Because it almost reads like he's pointing something out to them that they didn't, uh, didn't see. He says, your clothes never wore out and your foot never swelled these entire 40 years. And I almost pictured the Jews hearing that going, hey, he's right. Actually, remember how I told you how God kept disciplining his disciples, putting them in situations over and over and over to reteach them that they couldn't do it, showing them where they were faith-wise and then saying, here's what I want you to do this time. They get into a boat after the feeding of the 4,000. And they forgot to bring bread. And Jesus said, watch out for the leaven or the yeast of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And because he used the word yeast and they had forgotten to bring bread, they were like, oh man, he's mad. And I can picture them arguing with each other, going, well, it wasn't my day to take care of the lunch. It's Peter's day. Peter goes, ah, Tuesday's my day. And Jesus overhears them and says, guys, are you really worried about whether or not we got enough food? Don't you remember the 5,000 and how many basketfuls you picked up? And they said 12. And he said, in the 4,000 and how many you picked up? And they said seven. And he goes, do you still not get it? In other words, what he says was, hey, do you need help for your next step of faith? By the way, do you? I do. He says, look back and remember all that I've walked you through. I got a neat treat today. I got to sit on this front row and relive the Brainerd years. I sat here. My wife's with me, of course. She's always with me, except for the times when she's not. And uh, <laughs> here is a friend of ours named Andy Barnes. Andy was in that church in Chicago. He now lives here in New Jersey. And when we first came to that church, that church that had fifteen or twenty or thirty—we don't—it wasn't a lot. The only kids in the church were our oldest daughter Nicole and Andy and his cousin Bethany. There were only three kids in the whole church. By the time we left, there were 100, 200. There were a lot, a lot of kids. Sean and Kim were there. And as I sat worshiping today and looked down the pew, I leaned to my wife and Andy and said, I feel like I'm back at Brainerd. And God gave me an awesome little touch today to say, Remember that situation, which was beyond you? And he was right. The four previous pastors didn't go somewhere else. They quit the ministry. That's how messed up things were. And God says, you remember how I walked you through that? And you remember how I walked you through the next situation in that church in Florida? You remember how I walked you through when you left the pastor to go into this traveling ministry? I haven't dropped you yet. I'm not going to drop you now. I'm not going to ask for a show of hands. I just want you guys to be honest. In this latest episode of God's discipline in your life, did you panic a little? Probably. It's okay. God's not mad. The whole purpose was to show you what He already knows and to take you to the next level of trust. But don't look for how He did it last time. Say, Lord, what would you have us do this time? You see... I think Proverbs 3, 5, and 6 says it this way. By the way, this is the Christian life. Proverbs 3, 5, and 6 is the Christian life. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Don't ever lean on your own understanding. Don't ever say, well, I think we ought to, if it starts with I think, stop. In everything, everything, acknowledge Him, and He will direct your path. Now, as we close today, some of you are saying, all right, Jim, I'm with you so far, but I'm scared. If I'm going to try to seek the will of God and listen to the voice of God and learn that man doesn't live by, every, by bread, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord, if I'm to be one of those Christians who God will direct my paths, what if I make a mistake? What, what if I don't hear him right? Some of you got that fear? By the way, that's the enemy trying to mess with you because... He doesn't want you to even think about checking with God, but then once you even start thinking about it, He'll quickly whisper and say, but what if you don't hear perfectly? What if you don't do it right? Oh, two quick things. One from Scripture, one from personal experience. The Scripture one is simply this. In Luke chapter 22, Jesus is about to go to the cross and He sits His disciples down and He says, hey, you remember when I sent you out two by two and told you you couldn't bring anything? They said, yeah. He goes, did you lack anything? They go, no. He said, well, I'm about to be gone for the next three days. I'm paraphrasing here. But what he said was this. I'm about to be gone for the next three days, and the Holy Spirit's not going to come until after I go back to the Father, and you're going to be on your own for three days. By the way, when Jesus wasn't there taking care of them and the Holy Spirit hadn't come yet, how did those disciples do during those three days that he was in the tomb? Not too well, did they? <laughs> Apart from him, we can do nothing. But he says this. He says, if you don't have a sword sell your coat and get one. He says, sell your coat and get a sword. They said, well, we got two. He goes, that's enough. He wasn't literally saying, I want everybody to have a sword, but he used the term sword to illustrate that he wasn't going to be there to protect them. They were going to be on their own. But because he said sword, and then the next thing that happens is they end up in the garden and the crowd comes to arrest Jesus, Peter says what? Shall we strike with our swords? This must have been what he meant. And he starts swinging away. The Bible says he cuts off the ear of Malchus. And what does Jesus do? He says, put your sword away. I don't need your help. It's not exactly what I meant. But does he get mad at him? No, he picks the ear up and he puts it back on the guy. In other words, he cleans up his mess. Remember when your kids were little and they were learning to walk and you figured that they were about ready to be taught how to walk and they have been furniture walking and you thought, you know what, I think they're ready and you stood them up by themselves and then you backed away and you said, okay, walk to me. You remember? Their eyes got real big and they realized I'm not touching anything and they probably took a step, maybe another one, Eventually, they fell down, though, didn't they? And you remember what you did? You ran up and you kicked him in the head. Stupid kid, what's wrong with you? No, you didn't. You ran and you picked him up. You hugged him and you said, I'm so excited that you're trying to walk. Try it again. I'm right here. And your heavenly father is saying to you today, I've been disciplining you because I love you. And it's going to produce what I want it to produce. You've got to stop thinking that I'm mad at you. I'm not. I'm reminding you of your dependence, I'm showing you where you are faith-wise, and I want you to learn to listen for what I want to do next to teach you how to walk with me. Just recently I had the privilege of flying from Orlando to Baltimore and from Baltimore to Detroit because I uh, was gonna be preaching at a church in Detroit that I built a long-term relationship with, and. Because of my cancer, I hadn't been to them for a whole year. I usually go there two or three times a year. And uh, they had been praying for me. And now that I've been healed, the door opened and I had a chance to get to Detroit to go preach to those people that I loved over a weekend. And they had been excited to see me. And my flight was from Southwest Orlando to Baltimore and Baltimore to Detroit. Well, that was on a Thursday. The night before on Wednesday, I asked my wife for a haircut. I since i've had cancer and by the way i've been going bald for a while but since i've had cancer and was bald for most of last year i really don't care about my hair anymore sorry paul i apologize (laughs) but i just i've told people i treat my hair like you would a girlfriend you know is about to break up with you if you know she's about to break up with you you don't spend a lot of time or money on her okay and so my hair has been breaking up with me for a while and so I decided I'm tired of going to a barber and having him zip my hair with the clippers and then charge me 15 20 bucks so I said Becky would you cut my hair she was like really I'm like look I don't care about my hair let's just buy some clippers and you cut my hair so she's like okay and on Wednesday before I fly to Detroit I stripped down to my shorts, sit on a stool in our living room. We got wood floors so we can sweep up the hair. And we had bought clippers. We set it on number two. We put the number two on it and she buzzed my hair and did a great job. I looked in the mirror and I thought, man, that looks awesome. Tell you what, could you do me a quick favor though? The barber kind of tapers it a little bit around the ears. Could you take the guard off and just carefully taper my hair? She's like, you really want me to? I'm like, look, it's fine. You can do this. Well, she starts to taper around my ears, and all of a sudden I hear, oops. (laughs) And she starts to cry. And I'm like, what's the matter? She goes, Jim, I just made a huge bald spot on your head. I'm like, don't worry about it. She goes, no, you don't understand. It's a big one. I'm like, Becky, I don't care. I don't care about my hair. Because I really don't. I wasn't mad. I'm like, "Ah." she goes, you're going to be preaching in Detroit tomorrow. and I'm like, relax. Listen, Becky, listen nobody will see it. She goes, it's big. I'm like, it's mostly behind my ear. Hardly anybody anybody will notice. Nobody will see the bald spot. I promise you, no one will see it. So I get on the plane on Thursday. I sit down in an exit row, because the Southwest, you pick your seat, and there was actually an exit row seat still available, and I sit down in that one, and I look over at the guy next to me on the aisle, and as we take off, there's cameras under his feet in the seat in front of him. And I look at all the cameras. they are video cameras, still cameras. And on the back of each camera is a label that says NBC News. I said, what's going on? He said, I'm a photographer, cameraman for NBC News. All around us in this section of the plane are producers for NBC. Right in front of me is the national news correspondent, Carrie Sanders. I'm like, why are you guys flying Southwest? He said, on this plane are 50 kids from Marjorie Stoneham Douglas High School in Parkland, Florida, where the shooting happened. And they're flying to DC to go march on Washington. And we're following them on the whole journey. And when the beverage service is over, we're gonna interview the kids on the plane. So when they were done passing out the peanuts and the Coke, Cameraman gets up with his cameras, the news correspondent gets up with his tie and his microphone, and they go all over the plane interviewing these kids from the high school where the shooting happened. Now because of this, the whole plane now knows that NBC News, because they recognize the national news correspondent, and they see what's going on, the whole plane is abuzz that NBC News is on the plane. They finish all their interviews right about the time we're landing in Baltimore, and they sit back down. And the cameraman, i sorry, the the news correspondent, Kerry Sanders, turns around to the cameraman and says, do you want to make the commercial for the Today Show real quick? The guy goes, yeah, lean around your seat and I'll film you and we'll make the quick tease for the Today Show. So they start to and cameraman stops him. He says, no, the sun's coming in the windows in such a way that it's a bad picture. Switch places with me, just sit in my seat and I'll stand up in the aisle and film the commercial for the Today Show. So now the national news correspondent sits right next to me as they make this commercial for the Today Show. I don't want to be in the shot. So to get out of the shot, I do this, (laughs) not realizing I am now putting my bald spot on national television. They film the commercial, he goes, hey, this is Kerry Sanders, guess where I am? I'm so many thousand feet in the air. And guess what else? On this plane are 50 kids from Parkland High School where the shooting happened and we're gonna be interviewing them and you're gonna see those interviews in just a few minutes on the Today Show. They finish, they switch places, the cameraman comes back to his seat, turns his camera around and he watches the video on the back of his camera and I'm watching and I realize, oh dip, I'm in the shot. I'm not a little bit in the shot. All of me is in the shot. And I turned to him and I said, I feel bad. I didn't want to be in the shot. And so I kind of looked away. It looks like I want nothing to do with him. He said, nah, it looks like you're looking out the window. Don't worry about it. I was like, yeah, but do you see that bald spot? He goes, yeah. I go, my wife made that by accident yesterday when she was cutting my hair. And I promised her that no one would see it. And you just filmed it for national television. <laughs> we start laughing. I mean, it's hilarious. We're laughing so hard, we're crying. And we're making a scene. Because it's just, I couldn't wait till I got to the Baltimore airport before I got on my flight to Detroit. Because I couldn't wait to text Becky and say, you won't believe what just happened. <laughs> I did start the text with, you have to be ready to laugh before I tell you what I'm about to tell you. She wasn't ready to laugh at the first time. So what happened, though, was the plane lands. And as you know, when the plane gets to the gate, everybody stands up. But as they stand up, because NBC News is on the plane, everybody in the back's looking to the middle, everybody in the front's looking to the back. I mean, to the middle. Kerry Sanders gets up, turns around, and he says to us out loud, What was so flippin' funny? I said, Sir, let me explain to you what was funny. My wife cut my hair yesterday, and she made a bald spot. I promised her nobody would see it, and you just filmed it for the Today Show. We, the plane starts laughing. We all start laughing. I said, but I'm not worried about it. I'm a preacher, and I'm flying from here to Detroit to go to a church that's been praying for me. You see, I've just had cancer for the last year, and I've been through chemo and radiation, and I'm just glad to have hair. The Lord's healed me, and I'm just glad to have hair. I don't care about my bald spot. And then Carrie Sanders decides he wants to interview me right there in front of the plane. He doesn't get a microphone, they don't do a camera. He though, while everybody's watching, the whole plane's listening, he says, can I ask you a few questions? I said, sure. He said, what kind of cancer did you have? I said, non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. He said, congratulations, I have a cousin that just died from that. He said, did your faith help you when you went through cancer? I said, yes, sir, it did. I said, you see, when stuff like this happens, a lot of people think God's mad at them or He's punishing them. I already knew that He had fully punished Jesus for everything I've ever done on the cross. And so there was no way He was punishing me for sin because of my cancer because He'd already fully punished Jesus. And on top of that, even though, as you know, it was a serious cancer and I almost... There were times I wasn't sure if I was going to live. I wasn't worried about whether or not I died because I put my full faith in Jesus on that cross. I knew if I died, I was going to heaven. And I get the chance to preach to the whole plane. He says, I have one more question. He said, you seem to be a devout man. Did your faith get stronger or weaker through this? I said, it got stronger. But that's a good question because it's really easy to travel around this country and preach. It's another thing to have to live it. But I can look you in the eye and tell you, now that I've been through cancer, I believe everything that I've been preaching. It's been tested, and I know it's real. And the plane applauded. Folks, don't miss this. God took my wife's mistake and turned it into one of the greatest preaching opportunities I've ever had in my life. I got to preach to a whole airplane at once and the kids from Parkland High School. I couldn't have orchestrated that if I tried. We have a God that says, I'm just so glad you're trying to walk like Jesus. I'm so glad you're just trying to listen to me. Even if you make mistakes, I can clean up after you, and I can even take your mistakes and turn them into some of the greatest blessings. Just walk with me. Let me pray for you. Father, thank you again for this chance to come, this privilege to be able to be used of you to teach and to preach your word. Lord, I thank you that as I've been speaking this morning, I've been sensing your spirit taking full control, and thank you that your word is not going to return void. Our prayer now today, Lord, though, is this. May we surrender to your love today and your discipline. Lord, may we stop falling prey to the enemy's lies that you're mad at us. You're not. If we're your child through Jesus Christ, you have a purpose and a plan. But you're going to put us in situations that are going to remind us of you and our need of you and what your word says and whether or not we're going to be obedient to your word. And then you're going to tell us what you want us to do next and you'll turn it into a time of growth and blessing. Father, whatever that looks like in each of our lives, however that manifests itself, because it's going to be different for each of us, my prayer today is that we would surrender to your discipline and that we would know in our hearts that you do it because you love us. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.